Today on Blue 58, the Packers' final roster cutdown is looming, and Brian Gutekunst and company have a busy weekend ahead. Our listeners have quite a bit on their minds, too, so we'll take a look at some questions today, including the possibility of the Packers adding some outside help. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. We've got a boatload of questions that I want to take on today. And a lot of it has to do with how the Packers construct their roster after the first preseason game, which is bearing down on us here in just a few hours. I'm going to try to get this episode out a little bit early, just so if you want to listen to it ahead of the game, you can. I don't think we're really going to touch on anything that's going to affect this this final preseason game or uh, be affected by this final preseason game, but you never know. Um, these things have a way of getting weird, and the final preseason game of a given season always seems to be a little bit weirder. But before we talk about that, I want to take a second and just reflect on something a little bit out loud, Um, thinking out loud a little bit here, because this time of football season is my least favorite time of the NFL calendar. And I know that it's the nature of the game and all that, but I always get a little bit, emotional is probably too strong a word for it, but introspective this time of year. Because a lot of guys that are going to be on the field for the Packers in this final preseason game and throughout the NFL are suiting up for what is going to be their final game as not just a professional football player, but a football player at any level. Chances are they've been going through this process for years, 10, 15 years in some instances, maybe longer if you're a veteran player coming toward the end of of his career. And as fun as it is to speculate about who's going to be on the roster, and we're going to do some of that in this episode and at thepowersweep.com on Friday when I post my final roster prediction after this last preseason game, as fun as that is, it is also something that affects a lot of human lives. It's something that affects a lot of dreams. People have put up thousands and thousands of hours of work to get to this point in in their careers. We're talking about the top half of the top percent of football players on earth. And many of them are going to go out, truth be told, having not gotten a fair shake in their last go-round. There have been a few guys already in this Packers training camp who started out on the roster bubble and never really got a shot because they got injured or because the Packers had to move some guys around because of injuries at other positions. And that's just how it goes. It's done for them. And they may never get another shot because of a tweaked hamstring here, a roster deficiency there, and that's it. That's the end of the line. And I don't know what I'm I'm asking of you in light of this knowledge. Maybe it's just consider that as you watch the final preseason game and as you watch the, the final cuts roll in. As much as we may have developed feelings about certain guys, as much as we may dislike certain guys, and if you have a dislike for a certain player on the roster, generally it's for good reason. I mean, we are watching at home. It is in our livelihood on the line here. But I guess just remember that for the people involved this weekend, it is. And in many cases, it's more than that, too. It's something they've devoted their life to, to this point. And I hope they go out 
if this is the end of the line, feeling like they've given it everything that they've got. Because that's all anybody can really ask for. A fair shake you may not get, but an opportunity to at least give everything you can, well, let's hope that the guys that end up not getting another opportunity can at least say that they feel like they got to do that. Show everything that you can do, and then let the chips fall where they may. On to your questions. Uh, All of these have been collected from our Discord server, which you can become a member of by heading to patreon.com slash thepowersweep and contributing any amount per month there. We'll talk about that more in a second. But first up is Old Packers Fan, who offers this question, which has a lot of different permutations in the answers. He says, with the cut to 53 on the horizon, what position or positions are most likely to have players added from other teams' cuts? I think there are three that come to mind right now. Tight end, edge rusher, and safety. Tight end, I I wrote this week about uh, Tyler Davis at thepowersweep.com and why I think the Packers are giving him all the time he needs to sort things out this preseason. But even considering that, he is for sure not out of the woods yet. And on top of that, the Packers don't really have any anybody who's really stepped up and said, okay, this job is mine, outside of Mercedes Lewis, Robert Tunyon, and Josiah DeGuara. I think they'll look to add somebody from outside the organization on the practice squad if they don't keep Elise Mack, depending on what happens with Davis, in part because other than Mack and Davis, they don't have a really like an athletic upside guy in the pipeline right now. And other than Josiah DeGuara, there's nobody who's under contract for 2023 anyway. So they got to get somebody in that chain of development there for that reason alone, but also because there's really no prospect who you go, okay, that guy's a, a plus player, at least athletically there. Nate Becker is around. He's not a great tester for sure, though he did show a little bit of versatility playing fullback in his only two snaps in the last preseason game the Packers played. Um, they need somebody in the pipeline there is my point. And if they're looking to add somebody, whether it's on the 53 or as Brian Gutekunst calls it, the 69, now with 16 guys in the practice squad, um, I, I would look at tight end if they're looking to add a prospect. And I think they probably should be. At edge rusher there, it's kind of the same deal. They really don't have, for one thing, an athleticism-based prospect outside of Tipa Naliai and Jonathan Garvin, or on top of that, really a guy other than Rashawn Gary and Preston Smith where you would feel comfortable being like, comfortable being like, okay, this guy is the third edge rusher. This is somebody we can count on. They've got some prospects there. Naliai, Garvin, uh, Enoch Barre. Um, there are guys there, but it's not... It's not settled. If it's not going to be an edge three or an edge four, then surely somebody for the practice squad is going to be coming along. They're going to be looking to add some athleticism there, I think. Because even if you like Kobe Jones a lot, and he's had a pretty good camp, he's not really a big tester either. He's looking into some research. I was going to write a piece about about him. I, I don't think I'm going to end up doing that. But he's been kind of that just steady, eddy, middle-of-the-road sort of guy basically since high school. He was never really a big player for Mississippi State. He was never really just a, like a, a, a eye-popping prospect in high school. He certainly isn't like blowing up camp now, though he has made a play here and there. He's he's kind of middle of the road in a lot of respects. And 
I think the Packers want to aim a little bit higher there if they're looking for a developmental guy. Surely, if somebody gets cut, like there's a veteran cut who's a surprise, who's had some experience in the past, like say, uh, say there's a Whitney Merciless type guy who gets released, I, I would have to think the Packers are interested. And uh, if they're looking to add talent anywhere on defense, it's probably there. Or to go to our third position, safety. Boy, what a mess right now. Injuries have really wrecked this position group in the preseason. I have a hard time believing the Packers feel comfortable with the looks that they've gotten from guys in the preseason, though guys have certainly flashed. Micah Abernathy has had some flashes. Uh, Sean Davis has had some flashes, both good and bad. Innis Gaines remains a, a steady special teamer. There are some options there, but I have to think that if they had somebody with a, a little bit more consistent NFL experience, they might look to add them just to stabilize that third safety spot. I think the evidence right now suggests that they're open to options uh, as they've just steadily added more and more guys there throughout uh, this training camp run. They want to make sure that they're, they're settled there because so far it's been, it's been pretty rough at safety. Exploring a topic that we talked about prior to the last preseason game, we've got a good question here from Ray Pay Bay again in our Discord server. How common would you say a gamer-type player is in the league, someone that can't really shine until they're in a real game with stakes? We talked about this with, with Kingsley Inigbari um, because he was not an elite tester as an athlete, but he was always consistently productive in college. So I said that he probably was a guy who wasn't going to show up a whole lot in practice uh, or throughout training camp, though he did come on a little bit as training camp wore on here, but would show up well in games, and that appears to have been the case so far. And I don't know if that's super common. I can't speak for the NFL as a whole, but I, I think guys like that do exist. And I think generally there are guys that look a lot like Inigbari, guys who are not necessarily super-duper athletes, but win with technique or strength or experience or guile or whatever you want to call it, intelligence on the field. Uh, uh, J.J. Inigbari is one, uh, but I think Rasul Douglas might be an example of another, though you do hear a lot about him in practice. But if you're practicing specific techniques and you're trying to get specific looks on tape uh, and trying to get in alignment with everybody else, it's hard to win in practice by being smart. If you're installing a specific defensive scheme, a lot of what a guy like Rasul Douglas does involves going out of scheme or making plays uh, as a reaction to things within that scheme. There's not a lot of opportunity to do stuff like that in practice. And on top of that, what are you going to do with things like film study in practice? Sure, you're studying your, your upcoming opponents, and sure, you've got a scout team trying to run those looks, but they can't really simulate it like the opposing team is going to do. So you're not really going to show up a lot in practice if, if a lot of what you do is based on film study and repetition and things like that. And plus, on top of that, if you're doing things like installs or you're doing things like trying to give the opponents a good look, what is it? what value is it to just blow up a practice because you're trying to freelance and make plays doing what you do well? If you're staying in your lane and just trying to execute the scheme, chances are you're not going to show up a lot. But when the lights come on and it's time to, to really take it out on the other guys, I think guys like Rasul Douglas can really separate themselves. And, and Inigbar is a, an example of that. Um, he gets in a, in a situation where maybe he's not showing up in the one-on-one -on -one reps against opposing offensive linemen, but if you give him a chance to isolate against a guy in a game or work in like a two little two-man game, uh, a stunt or something like that, or take advantage of, of his 
technical abilities against a guy who might not be quite as technically precise, well, then he can start showing up in games. So guys like that do exist. And uh, I think it's a, it's a good example of why we should um, really try to lean on, on coaches uh, when they're saying that guys are, are having a good camp. Because remember, we're not seeing the vast, vast majority of training camp. Um, there's only so many practices that are open to the public and what you get out of those is uh, as a fan, I think pretty limited. Even I, I wonder about beat reporters sometimes, um, if they're, if they're just kind of, I don't want to say fooling themselves because I think there is some value there, but what are you really learning, um, from just watching all these drills and stuff? I I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical there. Um, and on top of that, we see a few preseason games. Well, there's any number of factors there. Um, that can affect a, a guy's performance. I mean, just look at, at the last game. I, you don't want to absolve anybody of it, uh, of their performance for whatever reason, but it was raining for a good portion of the Packers 49ers preseason game. And the field's slippery. Are you getting a true look at a guy if he's running around a, a field that is that is not suitable to play on or you know, m- maybe not in, in tip-top shape for the, the regular season? I don't know. Um, or, or the ball is wet or stuff like that. And that's all part of football, sure, but it's just one game in suboptimal conditions. It's, it's hard to get a, a full glimpse of a, the picture of a guy uh, in those circumstances. Another one from old Packers fan here. The 2021 Packers ran 11 personnel on about 60% of their plays and 12 personnel on about 30% of their plays, making up 90% of their total offensive plays. How do you think that changes for the 2022 Packers? Um, just as a refresher here, 11 personnel is one running back and one tight end. Uh, 12 personnel is one running back and two two tight ends. That's how NFL teams break down their personnel packages. Um, you never include the, the wide receivers in there. Um, so it's 11 personnel gives you three receivers. It's got to add up to five uh, because you, then you have five linemen in the quarterback. Um, so that that's how, how that all works out. Um, good question here because I think early in the season, you might see some of those snaps siphoned off towards multiple back sets while the Packers get their younger receivers sort of up and running. So in a normal year, they're they're going to want to stay in 11 personnel because that's really where the, the league is as a whole right now. It creates the most um, opportunities to take advantage of mismatches with opposing defenses. You get your, your fastest and, and best players uh, on the field and giving you the most chance to get chunk plays and big yards and stuff like that in 11 personnel. Um, but I think early in the season, you might see some of those snaps that you would see in 11 and 12 personnel siphoned off toward more multiple back sets. So think like 21 personnel, two backs, one tight end. A grouping uh, in that personnel of Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon, Alan Lazard, Sammy Watkins, and Mercedes Lewis does a lot of things for you. Sure, you're down to just two wide receivers, but Aaron Jones gives you some flexibility there. He can stay in the backfield and be a runner. Uh, he can be a receiver out of the backfield, or he can motion out uh, and function out of the slot. Or uh, you can bump Alan Lazard into the slot, have Aaron Jones on the outside, uh, try to get a matchup with uh, with Alan Lazard. Or if the linebacker follows Aaron Jones to the outside, well, then you really got some some matchup opportunities there. Um, it gives you a lot of flexibility. Plus, if they try to counter... Jones being out of the out of the backfield with just going with a defensive back heavy uh, personnel grouping, you can still pound away with AJ Dillon out of the backfield. Um, that's creating some mismatch, some numbers opportunities there, and you get the opportunity maybe of AJ Dillon one on one in the open field with a with a defensive back, and you like his chances there, um, just size wise. 
think about what things could look like out of 22 personnel. You go a little bit heavier here. You've got Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon on the field, of course. Alan Lazard probably isn't coming off the field no matter what, uh, given where he stands in the Packers wide receiver pecking order. But then you add in uh, Mercedes Lewis and Josiah DeGuara. You might end up with three people in the backfield here. Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon as backs, and maybe Josiah DeGuara as a fullback for a little full house type look. Age, uh, DeGuara as an H-back. He can motion around, do some interesting things, motion into the backfield, motion out of the backfield. If you want, you can flex out to a wide receiver look here with Aaron Jones uh, where you don't sacrifice a whole lot of blocking. You still have essentially 12 personnel on the field then uh, there as well. you got a lot of options here. And so while the Packers are getting Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs up to speed, I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of um, the the two-back personnel on the field. Pony packages uh, is what uh, what they, they call that in the NFL parlance. Uh, Dusty Evely uh, has written some great stuff about the Packers' potential use of that sort of um, personnel grouping the last couple of weeks. So check that out. Um, just search it wherever he posts his content. Uh, he'd be happy to show it to you. Uh, if you reach out to him on social media, uh, he's really great about that kind of thing. So I think there are some really interesting, uh, flexible options the Packers have um, with multiple backs in in the backfield. Ian P. asks, I've just listened to episode 558 on vulnerabilities. I do like a little bit of a risk analysis. My question is, how close to making your top five were Mason Crosby and Matt LaFleur? So if you remember back to that episode, we talked about guys the Packers could not afford to do without. Touched on a few guys that could really shape the Packers if they had to miss any amount of time. So we're talking like Alan Lazard, Rashawn Gary, Adrian Amos, so on and so forth. Honestly, I hadn't thought all that much about Crosby. Maybe an out of sight, out of mind sort of thing, but let's save him for a second. We'll circle back to questions about Mason Crosby because Matt LaFleur is an interesting option. He's not really somebody you typically think about losing and short of something really weird or I guess catastrophic happening, there's really nothing that's going to keep him off of the sideline. But say there was a scenario where Matt LaFleur was unavailable. What would happen? How would the Packers handle that? I think the Packers are pretty well equipped to handle it, in my opinion, because of Matt LaFleur's consistent strategy about developing other coaches. He's put other guys in position to understand what needs to be done, at least on the offensive side of the ball. At least four different coaches had input on play calling last year. Five uh, five coaches, in fact. Uh, Matt LaFleur, uh, Nathaniel Hackett, Adam Stenovich, Luke Getze, and Justin Outen all had a hand in, if not calling plays directly, having input on which plays were called in a given scenario. So that's some good development there. That's something you don't see with a lot of teams, and that wasn't something I I think uh, Mike McCarthy did particularly well. Um, Matt LaFleur, in short, I think has done a good job of duplicating himself and duplicating yourself, creating redundancies for your own job, even as like a CEO style coach in the NFL is good leadership. In my opinion, I had a really good experience with something like that in a church that I was a part of a while back. Um, we, they had a a small group program in, in that church and they needed people to lead those small groups. And I was uh, a part of that for a year. And one of the requirements for being a leader in a small group, um, from the, the person within the church that, that led this program was that you had to train up two people who you thought could be potential leaders for a future year. 
And the reason they did that was so that they never ended up with a shortage of leaders for this sort of scenario. So you were responsible, in addition to your responsibilities for the group, for identifying two people within your group you thought could potentially be a leader in the future. So even if you didn't want to do it the following year, you would be replacing yourself and adding one more person. Matt LaFleur, I think, has done a good job of training up guys in a similar sort of mold. He's given guys responsibilities. He's added responsibilities to their game. Uh, The Packers have guys on their coaching staff right now who have really come up through the ranks already, even in just the four years that Matt LaFleur has been there. And that, I think, is an example of really good leadership. Contrast that to Mike McCarthy, whose assistants never really seem to be in demand. Only two coaches that I can think of from the McCarthy era went on to head coaching gigs in the NFL, Joe Philbin and Ben McAdoo. That's not a great track record. Um, Philbin, for instance, it's been 10 years since he took over the Miami Dolphins. Outside of that, his coaches have not really been in demand really anywhere. Joe Witt Jr., uh, as a defensive backs coach, has has gotten some looks to a degree. Uh, Tom Clements uh, went somewhere else and came back to Green Bay. It's a pretty short list. I don't think Matt LaFleur is going to have that same kind of legacy because, as we've seen, his guys have already been in demand throughout the league. Nathaniel Hackett's got a head coaching gig. Luke Getze, uh, a, a high-profile gig with the Bears. Uh, Justin Outen following uh, Hackett to, Dol- uh, to Dolphins, to Denver. Um, it, it, the LaFleur tree is spreading. Um, so circling back to the question here, say Matt LaFleur goes down for a week, a month, whatever reason, has a major health issue, he's got to step aside. I think what you're probably looking at is Adam Stenovich stepping in as head coach. And behind him, you're probably losing some things to to brain drain collectively just because of who the Packers have had to replace over the last year or so. But just as an example of where the Packers' leadership would be, Stenovich is your head coach and functional offensive coordinator. You've still got Luke Luke Butkus as your offensive line coach. You've still got wide receiver and passing game coordinator Jason Vrabel. You've got quarterback coach Tom Clements. It's a pretty solid lineup, though it is worth pointing out that all of those guys are in new roles or weren't with the organization last year. So if those guys have to take over for Matt LaFleur, I think you do end up having some issues in the long term over the course of a you know six, eight, ten game stretch if Matt LaFleur would be gone. But in the short term, I think they could handle a guy like Matt LaFleur being gone. Here's a question from John. That's right. I'm allowed to ask questions on my own podcast. When is it time to worry about Mason Crosby? Now we've talked about, or well, we did have Crosby get mentioned here in Ian's question. And I wanted to take a second and talk about uh, about Crosby in particular. I am to the point where I'm, I wouldn't say I'm very worried about Crosby, I would say we are at an increasing level of concern there. He is still on the physically unable to perform list, though he says he is right on schedule. You can decide whether or not when he, if you want to take a player's word on that. So far, the Packers have signed two other kickers to participate in camp. They also worked out four other kickers this week alone. So are the Packers concerned? I mean... It seems like they're not not concerned. Say Crosby isn't able to go. I wouldn't put him in the like, um, boy, the Packers are absolutely up a river, up a creek, whatever the expression there is, uh, without him. It certainly makes their already fragile special teams unit even a little bit more fragile. 
And as we pointed out a couple episodes ago, the Packers are already in a position where two-thirds of the battery for field goals is potentially um, unsettled right now because Jack Coco is, um, well, he doesn't have that roster spot locked up, let's say that. And Mason Crosby is still on the physically unable to perform list. Pat O'Donnell's going to be there, but right now we don't necessarily know who's going to be doing the snapping or the kicking. And even if Crosby does come back, is he absolutely 100%? Do we know that for sure? And is Jack Coco going to be snapping the ball there? There's a lot we don't know. So from that perspective, it would be nice to at least have Crosby because he's a little bit more of a known commodity, even if he's not completely healthy. I think if you're concerned, and I'm at least a little bit concerned about it, you're not crazy. Final question here from Koftek. Now, we explored something like this a couple episodes back, but I think it's worth discussing again after the performance he had in the last preseason game. How do you feel about Jordan Love's future as a Packer? If he continues to develop as the preseason seems to have shown, what do you feel are the likely scenarios to happen? You think a short-term contract, a long-term contract, a trade? I don't know. Let's take that in reverse order. Uh, A trade doesn't seem super likely at this point unless the Packers... um, get absolutely just at, and like an offer you can't refuse sort of deal. And I think what would qualify for an offer like that would be similar to what the Packers got for Matt Hasselbeck. They ended up getting a top 10 pick in exchange for their later first round pick. And I think another pick later, I would want another pick later to move up there. Uh, that would be a pretty darn good offer if the Packers could get into the top 10, even if they had to trade out their other or their own first-round pick to do it, that seems like a a worthy deal to move up uh, in the first round, especially if you're getting like a two or a three on top of that. Um, That doesn't seem super likely right now. A long contract also doesn't seem super likely either. Even if you get to a situation where where Love is playing on his fifth-year option, you got to remember the Packers have a good deal of control here. They can franchise tag him for a couple years before things start getting prohibitively expensive. And if we're to the point where Love is playing on his fifth-year deal, we're probably out of the Aaron Rodgers era, just um, in all honesty at that point. So you're, you're probably looking at an evaluation sort of situation because a fifth-year deal isn't going to be super expensive, at least as far as, as um, starting quarterback contracts in the NFL go. I think a short-term contract is fairly likely because that's ultimately, I think, what a a fifth-year option is going to be. If they get to the end of this season and they feel good about Jordan Love, I think they're probably going to pick up that fifth-year option. And that, I think, ultimately puts him on a two-year deal with the Packers where they're going to have to decide what they want to do with him longer term. If they get to the point, if he's starting in his fourth year, which as of right now, August 25th, 2022, I mean, we're in year three right now. I I don't feel super comfortable saying he would start in 2023. I mean, who knows with Aaron Rodgers right now. But if they, they do pick up that contract, I think that's essentially what they're saying. We've got two years to figure this out. And that's not the worst situation to be in. I mean, the big hang-up that I have had with the, the love pick was that you're spending assets on a guy who isn't going to play for a few years in a time when you have a window open that sunk cost that is that's just a sunk cost at this point so i think you got to try to remove that from the evaluation about his future as much as you can as bitter a pill as that might be uh to say that you know you could have had somebody who would have helped you for a couple of years um instead of jordan love 
uh, we're, we're past that now. So looking at him as, as being a guy who's playing for a short-term contract right now is probably the best best way to look at this. Love, after this season, is going to be on a short-term contract or an even shorter-term contract. It seems like a pretty good investment to to pick up that fifth-year deal with the way the, the cap is expected to rise, even if you've got Love and Rodgers on the roster for 2024. It's not the worst thing in the world, especially if you think Love is a really good prospect long-term. And you got to remember, you still have control over him long-term with the franchise tag and stuff like that, even beyond the life of, of his contract. So I think the Packers just are probably going to wait this out until they absolutely have to make a decision. And right now, I guess that's the thing to remember, is they don't have to make a decision on Love right now until they know what's going to happen with Aaron Rodgers. And, and once they know what's going to happen with Aaron Rodgers, the probably the probable thing with Love, I'd have to think, is we're just going to see what he's got for a year. If he's great, great. If he's not great, it's going to be easy to replace him because we'll probably be picking in the top 10 anyway. So there you are. That's the Jordan Love future. That's all I've got for you in this episode. I'm going to go ahead and shove this one out the door right away so you can maybe listen to it before the Packers' final preseason game or or shortly thereafter, if that's how you're inclined to listen to it. Uh, I appreciate you sticking with us through the preseason. It's almost here. Regular season is bearing down on us, and I am excited. I'm ready to start doing things like game previews and talking about actual opponents and stuff like that. It's going to be a lot of fun, um, and try to savor it as we go through it. Because as I say every year, we only get 17 of these guaranteed. That's all we're going to get for sure. Beyond that, everything's gravy. If the Packers make the playoffs, awesome. If not, just try to get as much out of these 17 games as you can, because this is supposed to be fun. And if you're not having fun watching professional football, shoot, uh, go find something else to do because it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be enjoyable. And I am looking forward to having a lot of fun with each and every one of you this season. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you would share it with someone you think would enjoy it too. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.